Okay. Uh, did everybody get a handout? If you didn't, they're back on the table there. You can grab one of those. Um, so William Tyndale this morning, we're going to take a look at, at his life, and um, I'm going to be throwing a lot of dates out at you. Um, one thing that I think you'll appreciate about his life was how active he was uh, for the Lord amidst a lot of persecution. And with that comes a lot of dates because there's a lot of movement um, in his life and what was, going, what was going on in his life. And uh, just by the way, just by way, if you're interested in further study on Tyndale, um, one of the resources that we've continued to use during our time of looking at these key figures of the Reformation is Steve Lawson's book, Pillars of Grace. So that's uh, just very meaty. A lot of what I'm going to talk about this morning comes from that. Also, um, John Piper has a series called The Swans Are Not Silent. Um, I think there's six books that go along with that. Um, this one in particular is Filling Up the Afflictions of Christ, and it looks at the lives of Tyndale, Adoniram Judson, and John Patton. So uh, what he says about Tyndale in here is really good. Both Lawson and Piper draw from a major work, a biography by David Danielle on William Tyndale. And from what I've looked at and heard, that's kind of the premier biography. So if you really want to dig into what God did in Tyndale's life, the biography by David Danielle um, is one that you'll want to take a look at. So just by way of review, um, if you've been with us, we, we started in Germany by looking at Martin Luther. We've spent two weeks looking at each uh, key figure of the Reformation, then took a trip down to Switzerland, stayed there for a while, looking at Ulrich Zwingli, Heinrich Bullinger last week, and the week before that, Will looked at John Calvin, and now we're heading to England to look at the English reformer, William Tyndale. Now, before we get into to Tyndale's life and really his influence upon Christendom, I just want to give you some background. I think that will be helpful to kind of set the stage for really Tyndale's monumental work of translating the Bible from the original language of the New Testament, which was Greek, into English. As you may remember, if you've been with us during this time, the battle cry of the Reformation was sola scriptura, scripture alone. These men that we're talking about, they understood the work they, they were doing and the influence that they were having wasn't them. And Martin Luther said, the word did all the work, right? And that's what these men understood. As they came into contact with the scriptures themselves, they see their own hearts being transformed. That was the passion that drove them to get this word out to as many people as possible, even unto death, whatever that, uh, you know, whatever may come from that, they were willing to lay down their lives in that way. And because of the work that they had seen the Word do uh, in their own lives, there was just this passion that they had, this determination uh, to get the Word into the common language of the people wherever they were. Now, as the Reformers taught the Word of God, the power and the light of that Word began to spread over the spiritually dark continent of Europe. And England was one of those countries in desperate need of light shining upon it, of that power of that word to be manifest among the churches there. So the Bible in England was available only in Latin and only to the priests. And the 20 or so thousand priests who were in England couldn't even really understand it themselves. 
Most could not translate even a simple sentence from the Lord's Prayer from Latin into English. So you can understand if the priests are unable to do that, what that says about them teaching the people. Well, the people would obviously not be hearing the Word of God taught. Now, you may remember from what Desmond taught many weeks back um, on one of the pre-reformers, John Wycliffe. He had sought to relieve that darkness uh, by translating the Bible from Latin into English and distributing those copies. But if you remember, the church came down on Wycliffe in a very severe way, and anybody who owned a copy of Wycliffe's translation. In fact, in, in 1401, Parliament passed the De Heretico Comburendo, which means the burning of heretics. And the passing of that bill made it a crime to own or produce an English translation of the Bible. And it stated that those who did, who owned it or gave it out, they, they would be burned at the stake. So just let the weight of that sink in for a moment as you open your English Bible, right? And, and you read that. That's, that's heavy. That bill was still in effect more than 100 years later, where in 1519, seven people were burned at the stake for teaching their children the Lord's Prayer in English, right? Just feel, feel the weight of that, right? You're sitting down, fathers, with your children, 1519, and, and you're teaching your child catechism or something like that. You could be burned for that 500 years ago uh, for, for doing that. So England was in great darkness. And, you know, this is interesting. As, as you look at, um, you know, how God is using these men and you think about what Pastor Jack is preaching on and this war that we're in, you'll see that none of this was easy, right? This wasn't just kind of coasting along. Hey, I'm just going to sit down in my ivory tower and translate, you know, the word of God. There was, these guys were constantly on the run in the midst of a great spiritual war. So England is in this darkness. But however, during this time, Luther's works are being printed and they're starting to spread. And by 1520, some of those works had made their way to England and they were being read and they were being discussed by the scholars uh, in the English university cities of Oxford and Cambridge. In addition to that, uh, Desiderius Erasmus's Greek New Testament was being spread amongst the scholars as well. Uh, so these, these scholars are interacting with Luther's works, but again, that was of little value to the common man because he didn't understand it, right? So it was no benefit for him. If, if the common man was going to be helped, he needed the word of God in his own language, and it was during this time that God raised up William Tyndale for such a task. Now, just a little background on Tyndale. He was born in 1494 in Gloucestershire, which is located in the western part of England. Um, his family were landowners. And because of that, they were, they were pretty well-to-do. And because of that ability, or, or because of that uh, blessing that they had, they were able to send William to Oxford. And so in 1506, at the age of 12, William is sent off uh, to Oxford. And he enters what was called Magdalene School, which is like a preparatory grammar school. 
And while he was there, or, or that Magdalene School is located in Magdalene College at Oxford University. So it wasn't like he was jumping into college-level courses right at the outset as a 12-year-old, although their curriculum was much more um, powerful, I would say, um, than, than modern-day curriculum. Um, but Tyndale, he would spend 10 years there at Oxford from 1506 to 15. 16. And as his academic mind began to develop, it was clear very early on that this man was very brilliant and in many different ways. Uh, he studied all kinds of different issue, uh, topics and really excelled at all of them. But the one that he excelled in the, the most, the, the one where the Lord had blessed him the most, was in the area of linguistics. He had a love for languages, which obviously would be used mightily in his life. He became proficient in eight languages. Hebrew, Greek, Latin, Italian, Spanish, English, German, and French. That's helpful when you travel. <laughs> you can think, and, and he did. <laughs> Tyndale traveled a lot, not on sightseeing tours by any means, but he, he moved around quite a bit. And so he really had just a great ability to understand languages and uh, to grasp them and be able to communicate them. So while he's at Oxford, he earns a bachelor's degree, master's degree. Also, while he's there, he's ordained as a priest. And that's going to be important when we get to the, to the end of his life. Now, one of the things that, that God was doing in William's life while he's there at Oxford was really stirring within his heart this frustration at the lack of access to the Bible. He studied theology while he was there at Oxford, but for the most part, without any real direct reference to the scriptures. You can imagine, you're studying theology and you don't really have access to the word of God uh, to be able to, to interact with that. More of the study revolved around other people's opinions about what the scriptures had to say rather than the scriptures themselves. And here's what, here's what Tyndale said about that. He said, in the universities, they have ordained that no man shall look on the scripture until he be nursed in heathen learning eight or nine years and armed with false principles with which he is clean shut out of the understanding of the scripture. The scripture is locked up with false expositions and with false principles of natural philosophy. You can hear that frustration going on within, within Tyndale's heart. And I love that, that part where he says the scripture is locked up with false expositions, right? So men were getting up and saying that they were proclaiming the word of God, but Tyndale was seeing right through that and saying that's not rightly divided, rightly translated, or rightly understood. So Tyndale finishes up his time there at Oxford, and he heads to Cambridge. And he was at Cambridge from 1517 to 1521. So again, just to kind of put that uh, you know, in a time frame, 1517, Luther, 95 Theses, Church Door in Wittenberg. So here's Tyndale at Cambridge, 1517 to 1521. Now, during his time there, Luther's works are circulating as I mentioned, and it's really creating this buzz around the campus. And it was here at Cambridge that Tyndale is genuinely converted. While he's there in 1520, 
this small group of Cambridge scholars began meeting regularly to discuss this new theology that they were hearing, which was Luther's works. They gathered at a pub there on the campus at King's College, which was located inside Cambridge University, and the name of this pub was the White Horse Inn. So if you are familiar with uh, that podcast, which is really helpful, if you're not familiar with it and you listen to podcasts, that's a good one to, to listen to, Michael Horton and some, some other guys. But uh, the, the principle there was they would get together at, at the pub and they would sit there and they would discuss Luther's ideas that were, there, that were coming through. And this little group actually became known as Little Germany there at, at Cambridge because of the influence that Luther was having upon them. Tyndale is believed by many to have been a part of that group. And that, that group, that's worth just going back and studying out on your own. But nine influential reformers were in this, in this group, and nine of them would be martyred for their faith. Um, so just to tell you about the, these guys gathering together and talking about these things, you had some heavy hitters uh, in this group. Tyndale, again, assumed to be one of them. So Tyndale finishes up his time there at Cambridge and really desires to take a break academically and to kind of put that um, to the side for a moment. And the reason for that is because he didn't want to necessarily be under that structured environment of learning, but really to go off on his own and dig into more of what he was hearing about during the time of the Reformation and to give himself to those truths that were being taught. He wanted to take time to study and really meditate upon the Greek New Testament. So he ends up taking a job back in Gloucestershire, working with the wealthy family of Sir John Walsh. And he functioned in the capacity as a tutor to Sir John Walsh's children. In addition to that, he also preached regularly at a little church there called St. Adeline. And it was during that time that, that Tyndale really became convicted that if England was ever to be truly evangelized, if the word of God was going to spread amongst the people as he desired, it would not be from the use of Latin Bibles, but from Bibles that were translated into English. He said this, It's impossible to establish the lay people in any truth except the scripture were laid before their eyes in their mother tongue. Uh, so you can see the work, even from a, a young boy's his time at Oxford and uh, his frustration with lack of access to the scriptures, and then when he is able to get his hand on the scriptures, he sees the common lay people and the lack of access that they have to the scriptures. So God's doing this great work in Tyndale's heart, and uh, it's going to prepare him and use him mightily. Now, Tyndale, as he's studying, he's looking at Luther's ideas, he's studying the Reformation, what's going on, and remember, all this is really fresh at this, at this time. I mean, you're talking within like five years of Luther's posting of his 95 Theses. So he's digging into this, he's studying this, he's studying the Greek New Testament, and because of Sir John Walsh's influence, it was um, often that he would have priests come over to his house where he'd throw a little banquet. They spread a really nice table at the Walsh Manor. And so Sir John and his wife Anne would be there, and these couple of local priests would come in, and Tyndale would be at the table as well, and just seemingly off to the side, so to speak. And so he'd listen to these priests 
talk to Sir John and Anne and try to instruct them in the scripture. And Tyndale, studying the New Testament, is realizing that these guys don't even know what they're talking about. That this isn't what the scriptures are teaching. And so those discussions would often end up in some type of heated argument <laughs> because Tyndale's confronting these priests and they weren't expecting that to happen when they came to the, uh, the Walsh Manor here. And one discussion in particular that turned into this heated argument was about Tyndale's disdain for the Pope and the laws of the church that were contrary to scripture. And so at this particular meal, uh, you may have heard this statement before. This is one of the more popular ones. Uh, a priest says to Tyndale in the midst of this argument about the Pope and the laws of the church, the priest says, we were better to be without God's laws than the Pope's. And Tyndale famously replies, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spares my life, it will not be many years before I cause a boy that drives a plow to know more of the scriptures than you do. That didn't go over too well, as you can imagine. And so Tyndale is moving up the radar, so to speak, um, for the church and to silence him. So this, this fire that was beginning to burn deeply within Tyndale um, kind of manifests itself in him traveling to London in 1523 and he goes to London for the purpose of trying to seek an official authorization for the translation of the Greek New Testament into English, right? So Tyndale wants to try his best to go to the church and to say, can I get an authorization for the translation of this work? And he met with the Bishop of London, Cuthbert Tunstall, whom he'd heard may be more favorable to, to the translation into the English. He wasn't as opposed, this Tunstall wasn't as opposed as some of the others were to what was happening during the Reformation. But as he met with Tunstall, it became apparent that Tunstall was not going to approve. He wasn't going to be the one who put into writing that he was okay with an official authorization of the scriptures. So Tunstall was resistant to Tyndale's desire and the reason for that is because Tunstall had been hearing of what was going on in Germany since Luther's German Bible was translated a year earlier in 1522. And Tunstall didn't want that uproar that he was hearing about in Germany to come to England. And he knew that a translation, an authorized translation, would bring that same type of reform and that same type of challenge to the Catholic Church. And so he denies Tyndale's wish. Now, that does not stop Tyndale one bit. And in fact, it only fuels the fire more for him. His convictions grow even deeper. He really knew at that point that if this was going to happen, if he was going to be able to translate, it wasn't going to happen in England. That if he was going to make that happen, he's going to have to go elsewhere. So in 1524, at the age of 30, he goes to Hamburg, Germany. And when he left England there in 1524, he didn't know it at that time, but he would never return to England again. He would never return to his homeland after that. He would spend the next 12 years and the last 12 years of his life on the run 
as a fugitive as an, an outlaw in the eyes of the church. So in Hamburg, Tyndale begins translating the Greek New Testament into English. He was there for about a year before he heads to Cologne, Germany, which was in August of 1525. Cologne, if you remember from our discussion on uh, Bullinger, Bullinger kind of had the same type of mentality. Cologne was kind of the, the most, it was the most populous city there in Germany. And so that's the reason that Tyndale wanted to go in there. He thought, maybe I have a better opportunity of meeting people who are more sympathetic to what's going on with the Reformation. At the same time, Cologne was very entrenched in Roman Catholicism. Uh, so he had to be wise in his dealings and who he talked to and who he didn't talk to. Um, because if word got out that he was trying to do this, uh, there were great repercussions to him. In Cologne, he does find a printer named Peter Quintel, who agrees to publish his translation. Now, as hard as Tyndale tried, and as much as he tried to convey to Quintel that, okay, this, we got to keep this way under wraps here, because if this gets out, <laughs> there's going to be serious uh, consequences. One of the guys who worked at a print shop went to the local tavern one night and had a little too much wine, and his lips were very loose <laughs> that night. And he started talking about this new work that they were doing at the print shop. There was a guy there, John Cochleus, who absolutely hated what was happening with the Reformation, who overhears what this gentleman is talking about, and almost immediately sets up for a raid on this printing press. Somehow, Tyndale gets word that this is going to happen. So Tyndale gets over there first, gets all of his uh, translation, and is able to get out of there and kind of flees into the night uh, to get out of there. Only 10 pages of his translation was able to be printed before the print shop was, was raided. So he didn't make much headway there uh, in Cologne. Which 10? Which say that again. Yeah, I'm not sure. It didn't say. It just said, yeah, it just said 10. Good, good question, though. It would be interesting to find out. So Tyndale takes off, leaves there, and he heads to the Protestant-friendly city of Worms. Now, you may remember 1521, Luther's tried for heresy there in Worms, and Luther kind of becomes somewhat of a folk hero there in the city. And so the inner workings of the Reformation are happening a little bit there in, in Worms, and people were more open to that because of uh, Luther's stance, and they saw his boldness, and you know that, that appealed to them. Even if they didn't agree with all of his doctrinal conclusions, they loved the fact that somebody stood up and, and said something against the corruption that was taking place uh, within the Catholic Church. And so it was there in Worms in 1526 now that Tyndale finds another printer, Peter Schaefer, and he agrees to complete the printing of the New Testament into English. And about 6,000 copies of the New Testament are printed at this shop in clear, common English. Uh, you can imagine the excitement uh, that would be going on within in Tyndale's heart. He finally had the word of God in the mother tongue of England. In spring of that same year there, in 1526, those Bibles began to be smuggled 
into England in bales of cotton. Tyndale used English merchants to ship these to England. Um, and, and again, you remember, because of his family being fairly wealthy, they had connection with merchants who were, who were also fairly wealthy. So Tyndale's able to find English merchants there in Germany, send them over to England to be received by Lutheran Germans, who they knew what was going on here. So they received them, and then it kind of goes through customs, right? They, they checked the, the bales of, of cotton, um, but obviously not too well, because these Bibles get in uh, quite rapidly. They're picked up at the port there by a secret Protestant society known as the Christian Brethren. And then they're distributed all throughout the land um, to, to all kinds of different people. People were very eager to get their hands on They heard about that this was happening. And, and remember, um, it's not like, hey, the Bibles are being printed. Let's go get a Bible. No, you, you get caught with that Bible, you might die. <laughs> you may die for owning that, owning that copy. Uh, so it wasn't just like, hey, there's a sale down at the port. Let's go get a Tyndale New Testament. They didn't have Amazon. They did. Yeah, they couldn't go covertly and have it shipped to some unknown location and then go pick it up. That's correct. That's correct. Yep. Yep. Yes. Yeah, 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 Bibles are still smuggled into countries today, yeah, absolutely, it's not something that just happened 500 years ago, very good, so 1526, so lots happened in 1526, Tyndale gets 6,000 of these New Testaments printed, spring of that year, shipped back to England, being distributed, summer of that year, okay, so just a couple months after this happened, as you could probably imagine, the church officials become aware of the fact that Bibles are coming into our country. And again, they had heard what was happening in Germany with Luther's German translation uh, going across. And so they destroyed all the copies that they could find. In fact, this is, this is one of the highlights of, of the study for me. I just love the, the irony here and even the sovereignty and humor of God in this. 1527, the Archbishop of Canterbury, William Warren, decides what he thinks is this ingenious plan to stop these Bibles from coming in to England and getting into the hands of the common people. He decides to purchase the remaining Tyndale New Testaments. This, this way, he keeps them out of the hands of the common people. Um, they couldn't trace specifically. They knew they were coming in, but they couldn't trace specifically. But obviously, Warm had enough information to know, I can get these Bibles. And so he does. He ends up purchasing the remaining uh, copies of Tyndale's New, uh, New Testament translation, and he burns them. But that ends up backfiring, no pun intended, because the money from the sales actually enabled Tyndale to produce a revised second edition of his New Testament. Uh, as he continued to study and he said, oh, these words would be better here, Tyndale revises them. And with the purchase of all these, he's able to print a larger run than the first one. So Warham 
unintentionally funds a better, more accurate edition with a larger print run. So I thought that was, <laughs> that was just, that was great how the Lord. That, there you go. Okay, so that's, that's 1526, a lot going on there. May of 1528, uh, Tyndale's also writing. He's not only translating, but he's writing. As he's studying the New Testament, man, he's just becoming convicted. And we'll get into this a little more next week when we focus more on his theology. But the doctrine of justification by faith alone is just gripping Tyndale's heart. And so he writes his first major theological work called The Parable of the wicked mammon. And it, that really focused in on that doctrine of justification by faith alone. Now, you've got his Bibles going out across England. You've got him now writing things and that being distributed. So the church is trying to slow this down. And so in June of that same year of 1528, the Archbishop of York, Thomas Wolseley, he dispatches three agents to the continent to search aggressively for Tyndale and was unsuccessful in finding him. Uh, but while Tyndale is hiding out in Marburg, Germany, he continues to use his pen. And so he writes another theological book called The Obedience of a Christian Man. And we'll, we'll look at this a little bit more next week. I'm going to pull out sections from his writing so you can get a better understanding of where he was at theologically and what was going on in his heart. But that book, The Obedience of a Christian Man, really was his most powerful and influential work, um, which we'll get into more uh, next week, Lord willing. September now, 1528, uh, Tyndale's still trying to be tracked down by other agents. He's still in hiding. And the other thing that he does while he's in hiding here, as I mentioned before, he learned eight languages. Um, not, not all of that was learned at Oxford or Cambridge. While he's in hiding, he teaches himself Hebrew so that he could also translate the Old Testament into English uh, as well. So he's learning Hebrew, trying to get that down. He's revising his New Testament as he's you know, thinking about all the different words that he could bring over and how he could say this uh, the best way. So he's doing a lot of work while he's, while he's in hiding. A year later, in 1529, he moves from Hamburg, where he was in hiding, to Antwerp in Belgium, just west of Germany. And while he's there at Antwerp, he completes the translation of the first five books of Moses, the Pentateuch. But as he's there, he still feels the pressure of people looking for him. He feels that word might be getting out. It may be too dangerous to stay here. So he flees from there, jumps on a ship to head up the Elbe River back into Germany. And this, listen to this. He's on the ship. A storm strikes the ship. And he loses all of the work that he did on the Old Testament. Done. Gone. He's got to start from scratch. And he does. I just think of the determination. I was just reading through I was like, man, how discouraging that could be. You teach yourself Hebrew. I mean, you're, you translate the first five books of the Old Testament. And then, boom. He wasn't using the cloud. Gone. He wasn't using the cloud. Could have backed it up. Yep. 
the back, backup system there. George, ever the one-liner. Very good. So he eventually does make it to Hamburg after this setback and the ship being wrecked. Uh, there he's received into a home of the Von Emersons. Uh, the Von Emersons were very friendly to the Reformers. They loved what they were seeing happen with the Reformation. And it was here that Tyndale was reunited with a classmate from Cambridge by the name of Miles Coverdale. And for the next 10 months, Tyndale, with the help of Coverdale, retranslate the Pentateuch into English. Uh, so they took the remainder of that, of that year. Will? What year is this? 1529. 1529, okay. Same year, 1529, a guy by the name of Sir Thomas More, maybe you've heard of him, uh, extremely devout and intelligent Roman Catholic, absolutely hated Tyndale, a rabid hatred for Tyndale, and hated what was going on. So Moore takes up his pen and begins writing against Tyndale and what Tyndale's doing. And that name of that work was called A Dialogue Concerning Heresies. Let me just give you a flavor of how Moore felt about Tyndale. These are some excerpts from that writing regarding Tyndale. Moore says, Tyndale is the captain of English heretics, a hellhound in the kennel of the devil, a new Judas, worse than Sodom and Gomorrah, an idolater and devil worshiper, a beast out of whose brutish, beastly mouth comes a filthy foam. You didn't like him too much. Okay. And, and you, could, you could imagine why. Uh, Tyndale's making great uh, progress here with uh, getting the truth of God's word spread abroad and the effect that that's happening with, uh, within the uh, Catholic Church. Okay, so now in January of 1530, the five books of Moses are printed into English and smuggled into England and distributed. Now, Tyndale's desire, obviously, was eventually to get all of the Old Testament translated into English, uh, but that was a work that God had not ordained him to finish, uh, which we'll get to in a few moments. Now, you can probably imagine the frustration of King Henry VIII, the King of England. Uh, he's tried every which way to capture Tyndale, and he's been unsuccessful. England was being inundated with Tyndale's New Testament and now the Pentateuch. So Thomas Cromwell, who was a counselor to Henry, decides that he's going to try a more diplomatic approach to try to track down Tyndale. What he ends up doing is he commissions an English merchant by the name of Stephen Vaughan, who was very sympathetic to the Reformation, and he sends Vaughan to try to find Tyndale. So Vaughan gets to Germany, and he sends out three letters to Tyndale to cities that he knows Tyndale might be in, or that he's heard that he might be in. Tyndale ends up receiving one of these letters, and he and Vaughan have a series of secret meetings. And Vaughan tells Tyndale that what the king is offering to him is a salary, and also a safe passage back to England. 
Tyndale refuses this offer, and the primary reason for that is because he feared that the king would not keep his promise. And you could understand his suspicion. Uh, similar offers were made to John Huss and Luther, and they were both betrayed um, when they uh, acted upon that. But Tyndale does tell Vaughan that I will return to England upon one condition, that the king authorized someone to have the Bible translated into English. Man, that speaks volumes. He wasn't even saying it needs to be my translation. If the king authorizes somebody to get the Bible translated into English, I will come back to England. If the king does that, he would return to England, and he said, if that happens, I'll return, I'll never translate again, and I'll offer my life unto death to the king if need be. Man, that is powerful. So Vaughn writes back to Cromwell, and Piper gets into this in, in his little book here, and this is what Cromwell, uh, or this is what Vaughn says to Cromwell about Tyndale. He says, I always find him singing one note. And that note was this. Authorize the Bible's translation to English, and I will return. That's what Tyndale, Tyndale kept coming back to. The king could offer him a safe passage, could offer him a salary. Tyndale was interested in none of that. He said, authorize a translation into English, and I will come back, and even if it means my death. Unless the king did that, Tyndale said, I'm not going to stop writing, and I'm not going to stop translating. So Vaughn returns to England, like many others before him, without Tyndale. Well, in 1531 now, Tyndale responds to Moore. Remember, Moore writes this uh, dialogue concerning heresies. Tyndale responds to that. And the essence of what Tyndale got at there is that Scripture is clear enough to be understood without the church leadership. That was the essence of what Tyndale was trying to get across. Now, that response by Tyndale elicited nearly a half million words by Moore in return, virtually attacking every line of Tyndale's response. So again, you can see this, this hatred that was there by Moore. So 1534 now, early 1534, Tyndale moves to Antwerp where he had been before to live with an English merchant there named Thomas Points, who is considered a, a very good, wise friend of Tyndale's. And while he's staying with Points, he completes his last revision of his New Testament translation. In addition to that, he continues the next part of his Old Testament translation from Joshua to 2 Chronicles. Now, back in England, there was a man named Harry Phillips who had been given a large amount of money to travel to the continent to find Tyndale. And Phillips does end up finding Tyndale and develops a friendship with him, a, a, a Judas type of friendship, because uh, he knows why he's there. And Phillips would betray Tyndale. He sets up a time and a place for them to be at a certain location, and he tells soldiers, here's where we're going to be at this time. Uh, they were going through a very narrow passageway where it was not possible for two people to fit at the same time. And so Moore pretends to show honor to Tyndale and says, please, you go first. And 
Tyndale goes first, and as they're walking through this narrow passageway, there's two soldiers on the other side of that, and as soon as they come through, point, or, uh, Phillips, who is much taller than Tyndale, points down to Tyndale, showing that this is the man, and he ends up being captured at that point. So after 12 years of being on the run, Tyndale was captured. He was taken to the castle in Vilvorde, there in Belgium, and he was held there for about 18 months as preparations were being made for his trial. And it was during this time, as he's in prison, that he writes another treatise entitled Faith Alone Justifies Before God. And he really wanted to cement the idea of what he was most convicted about from his study in the scripture. To give you an idea of what was going on in Tyndale's mind during this time, uh, we have a letter that Tyndale wrote to a nobleman who could help him if he desired. And Tyndale said this uh, in the letter. He said, I beg your lordship and that of the Lord Jesus that if I am to remain here through the winter, you will request the commissary to have the kindness to send me from the goods of mine, which he has, a warmer cap. For I suffer greatly from cold in the head and am afflicted by a perpetual catarrh, which was a lung condition that was exacerbated by cold weather, uh, which is much increased in this cell. A warmer coat also, for, wit, for this which I have is very thin. A piece of cloth, too, to patch my leggings. My overcoat is worn out. My shirts are also worn out. He has a woolen shirt, if he will be good enough to send it. I have also with him leggings of thicker cloth to put on above. He has also warmer nightcaps. So you can just kind of think about what's going on. I mean, Tyndale is physically suffering, and not only spiritually suffering. And then he says this, and I, and I ask to be allowed to have a lamp in the evening. It is indeed wearisome sitting alone in the dark. And then listen to this. But most of all, I beg and beseech your clemency to be urgent with the commissary that he will kindly permit me to have the Hebrew Bible, Hebrew grammar, and a Hebrew dictionary, that I may pass the time in that study. In return, you may obtain what you most desire, so only that it be for the salvation of your soul. But if any other decision has been taken concerning me to be carried out before winter, I will be patient abiding the will of God to the glory of the grace of my Lord Jesus Christ, whose spirit, I pray, may ever direct your heart. Amen. William Tyndale. So you can get a glimpse of what's going on in Tyndale's heart. Uh, it's very cold in that cell, but he said, the thing that I want most is the Hebrew Bible, Hebrew commentaries that I can pass my time in this study. And his desire, obviously, was to finish that translation. Tyndale would indeed stay there through the winter of 1536. We don't know if they granted that request that he had laid out. And then in August of that year, Tyndale stood trial, and a long list of charges were drawn up against him, and he was condemned as a heretic. And here are some of the charges that were brought against him. Believing that justification is by faith alone, that human traditions cannot bind the conscience, that the human will is bound by sin, that there is no purgatory, and that neither Mary nor the saints pray for Christians, and Christians should not pray to them. 
that same day that those charges were brought against him, he was also excommunicated from the priesthood in a public service. If you remember when he was at <coughs> Cambridge, or Oxford, I'm sorry, he was ordained as a priest. And what they would do during this ceremony is they would place a man on his knees, they would take a sharp piece of glass or a knife, and they would scrape his hands, showing that the anointing of the priesthood had been taken away from him. Additionally, they would place the bread and the cup in his hand and then remove it from his hands. And finally, they would strip him of his priest's vestments and they would reclothe him as a layman. Now, after this, uh, Tyndale was then handed over to the secular authorities for punishment and his death sentence was pronounced. And on the day of his execution, a large crowd gathered around the southern gate of the city, as they often did during executions. Uh, Tyndale was brought forth to the place of his execution. And because he was formerly a priest, he would not be burned alive. They would strangle him to death first. Before his strangulation, Tyndale was given a moment to pray, and then he was urged one last time to recant. And he refused to recant, and then uttered what are probably his most famous words, his last words, and it was this, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. That's awesome. He was then strangled to death and afterward burned at the stake as a heretic. You know, as we think about Tyndale's life, Hopefully what you've been able to see just in this short um, time together looking at his life is this single-mindedness that he had and what an encouragement that can be for us as well. How wonderful it would be if others were to say about us what, what uh, Vaughn said to Cromwell about Tyndale. He's always singing one note. If that was the declaration of our lives, if our lives were so singular, so focused on nothing but knowing God and seeking to make him known both to each other and to the lost world around us who is in as much darkness as those in the time of Tyndale, perhaps just in a different way. So next week, we're going to look at some of Tyndale's theology. We'll look at excerpts from his writing to get a better idea uh, of what was going on in his heart, but I hope this has been an encouragement to you as you again think about the way that God used these men and uh, the influence that they can have uh, upon our lives. Okay, all right, well, let's go ahead and, and pray. Father, we thank you for this time to be able to study uh, the life of William Tyndale. Father, we recognize that he is known, that he is famous in church history only because of the way that you used him. In and of himself, he is nothing. But in your hands, as each one of us, Father, we can be mighty instruments in the hand of our God. And that is our desire, is to learn from his life and to pray that you would help us to have that singular focus of knowing you and seeking to make you known for your glory. So bless us now, I pray.
as we go into the service and we are once again reminded of the war that we find ourselves in, which is the same war that Tyndale was in, just in a a different way. So we thank you for that, Father. Bless our time together in Jesus' name. Amen.